Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome into Living Off the Land, episode 215. I'm your host, Dan, here, as always, with uh, co-host Steven. And uh, we are prepping for Heat Wave 2022. Yeah. Tomorrow. Steven, how we doing? It's going to be pretty short-lived. Oh, I'm doing great, by the way. Uh, But yeah, we're just randomly going to go up to like 98 degrees tomorrow, and then it's we're going to have some more big storms on Thursday. Is it because you want it all or nothing at all? Oh. Is that a 98-degree song? I I don't remember. I can't remember. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, last night we had some really gnarly storms, particularly to the west and the south of the greater, the greater Cleveland area. Uh, I had to divert around several roads that were blocked by power lines and trees being down this morning. But, uh, yeah, hopefully those of you out there, you're not dealing with, like, your power being out right now because – not having AC tomorrow is gonna suck. The the song oh. the song that I quoted uh, when uh, when you said ninety eight degrees uh, was not ninety eight degrees. It was O Town. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable. Well, anyway, uh, as you heard at the beginning of the uh, recording here, uh, it's the hardest the thing you'll ever have to do. What's that one? What's that one? Maybe I'm wrong now. What was that? I don't even know what it's the hardest thing I'll ever have to do. I have no idea what that is. That I'm pretty sure is a 98 degree song. Is it? Okay. Well, I was wrong, so you may be right. But uh, anyway, beer of the week this week is a pseudo local beer. If you've been listening to the podcast uh, since our beginning. Uh, you'll know that there's a funny inside story about this brewery, BrewDog, uh, which is originally from overseas, I believe in Scotland, has a Columbus uh, brewing facility, and as of this year, opened a tap room in downtown Cleveland. So, we've got overseas, we've got Columbus, and now we've got Cleveland for BrewDog. And I am enjoying a twist on one of their staple beers. I'm drinking tonight Hazy Jane Mango. Mm. Hazy Jane is one of their staple beers. It is their New England IPA or Hazy IPA. And I uh, saw this in the cooler at Max Beverage. Uh, shout out Max, as we do all the time, um, on Ridge Road in Parma. Uh, I saw Mango. Hazy Jane or Hazy Jane Mango. So I wanted to try that for sure. Uh, I know we've got a lot of Hazy IPA lovers out there that listen to us. Namely, one of our former co-hosts, uh, Ryan Donathan. Shout out, Ryan. Hope you are well. Uh, but this is the mango version of Hazy Jane. We've had Hazy Jane on the show before, and we really liked it. And uh, we're going to go ahead and give the mango version a try. Interesting. Can definitely taste the mango. Uh, it's definitely a hazy. And it's definitely pretty good. I mean, generally, if you, if you bring a hazy Jane to me or if I bring a hazy Jane to the podcast, I'm going to like it. 
Uh, that's my favorite style of beer is the hazy or New England IPA. And uh, this tastes super hella unfiltered and uh, very hazy. I bet I bet you couldn't, couldn't see through this beer if you poured it into a glass. That's how hazy it would be. Wow. Almost like an orange juice. So when they say this is hazy, and it's interesting that hazy and New England IPA is almost interchangeable. Is that just the idea that like it's mostly cloudy it's and the, foggy up yeah, there? Yeah, like, no, it's the it's the it's the style. It's hazy and New England. That's the style. Okay. Wherever you're from from in the country, you may call it New England. You may call it hazy. You know, mm-hmm. but uh, essentially, what it is is this is an IPA that's unfiltered. And that gives you that cloudy um, uh, visual of the beer once you pour it into a glass. Hmm. So, but this one is specifically made with uh, a mango twist. And you know what? Of course, I had it pulled up and then I switched it out. Let me give you a quick description of Hazy Jane. Where are we? Of course, ads and pop-ups everywhere. Um, so here we go. This is straight from BrewDog's website. Mango Tart Juicy, our flagship New England IPA with a fruited twist. Welcome Hazy Jane Mango, a fruited marriage of soft tropical hops and ripe mangoes. It is 7.2% ABV, so very high. Uh, it is, it's pr- it's pretty hoppy. It doesn't have a lot, it's not very, uh, it's not very bitter, but it is, it is a little hoppy forward. Um... It is made with uh, mango extract, which is interesting. Hmm. So, yeah, Brewdog Hazy Jane Mango. I like the can. It's a very, you know, it's got the, uh, like, almost aqua green and then the mango color on the bottom. Um, says it's brewed in Ohio, so local. United We Stand and Independent. Uh, independent Brewery. Hazy Jane. Uh, let's see. Anything else here? trying to see it contains lactose interestingly enough so but uh but yeah i would say well first of all the price point is very similar to most uh craft six packs that you'll see uh, on the market this was i believe 10.99 for six pack um i would rate this a 7.4. 7.4. four. Seven is the rating. I would certainly get this again. Uh, I would get it on draft um, anywhere. Still haven't been to the BrewDog Tap Room. I really need to go there. So uh, that might be in the cards here in the next couple weeks. But I've uh, heard good things. And, uh, yeah, I was excited to try this, and it definitely lived up. 7.4 for BrewDog Hazy Jane Mango. And that is the beer of the week. All right, so All right. now that we've settled in here a little bit, uh, we're going to transition into B-Can. Uh, so, 
So far on BCAM, we have covered three of the neighborhoods that are adjacent to downtown. you got Asia Town in the northeast, Ohio City in the west, and Tremont in the south. There's one other neighborhood we have not covered uh, that touches downtown so far, and that is Central, immediately to the southeast. And that is what we're going to be talking about tonight. So Central Neighborhood, if you've not been there or don't know about it, uh, is bounded in the north by Euclid Avenue, in the east by East 71st Street, in the south by I-490 slash the Green Line, and in the west by I-90. So this so if you're, you're imagining this area, so you're going from downtown, you're just going basically just across I-90 to get into this area. So in, in the western side of this neighborhood, that's where you have St. Vincent Charity Medical Center and also the Tri-C Metropolitan Campus. And then you just kind of, as you come over a little bit further on, you head into some residential area, uh, actually some um, newer condominium housing is mostly in the area between East 30th and East 40th Street. And then as you go further on over to the east, it actually becomes a an area that's mostly filled with public housing, particularly if, if you're between Central Avenue and Woodland Avenue. And that pretty much continues all the way out until you get to Woodland Cemetery, which I'm going to talk to uh, about quite a bit in detail here in a little bit. Um, generally speaking, in terms of the area, the residential area, it's better the further north you go, and it's sort of sketchier the further south you go for the most part. Right along the northern edge of this neighborhood, right on Euclid Avenue at East 53rd Street, is one of Cleveland's true gems, and that's the Agora Theater and Ballroom. Oh, yeah. The Agora Theater and Ballroom has been Love the Cleveland's Agora. staple for a very, very long time. Uh, major performing arts See theater. many concerts there. Constantly there's always shows there pretty much all throughout the year, but especially um, recently renovated too. Yeah. They, they put a lot of work into the Agora actually. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you've never been there, this is again, it's sort of almost halfway to the uh, Cleveland clinic main campus from downtown. And it's sort of in that area that they, they refer to that area as midtown, you know, midtown kind of straddles the border between Asia town and, uh, Central, and then further off, it, it sort of straddles uh, Huff and Fairfax as you go further to the east. It's not really its own neighborhood, but if you were to draw it, nowadays it would pretty much be the area between Chester and Carnegie Avenue, uh, roughly sort of in the quad intersection of all four of those neighborhoods. And it's an area that is starting to see some private investment now because for a long time, Agora was actually run down. It was actually not that nice, but... Uh, it and some of the buildings around it. In fact, the city mission is just immediately uh, to the south of there. That's a that's a block to the south of the Agora. And the city mission is, well, it started as a homeless shelter, but it is now a, uh, it's a, a community cornerstone for not just the central neighborhood, but also for a whole bunch of uh, other families that live in the Cleveland area. Uh, they do all sorts of outreach projects at the city mission. As you go further south down, uh, George Washington Carver High School is just south of there. East Technical High School is just to the south of that. Um, you talk about main commercial corridors. The main commercial corridor in this area is pretty much the area from East 56th Street between Scoville Avenue and I-490, and then also uh, just around that five-way intersection with Woodland Avenue. That is a Tell you what, you get stuck on the uh, wrong side of that intersection, you could be waiting at a red light for a good three or four minutes. <laughs> that's just a 
that one's a little bit of a pain to get through, I, I can say, as a rideshare driver. But, uh, yeah, and then, of course, as you get to the far east end of this neighborhood, here's where I want to focus a little bit because um, today is Flag Day, which I don't know if a lot of you are aware of this. But uh, not only is it Flag Day, but this Sunday is also Juneteenth, which is the uh, anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation. And it is also Cavs Championship anniversary. It's also Father's Day. That kind of burying the lead on that one, I guess. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, Sunday's kind of an important day for in many ways. And if you're talking about flags and you're talking about going back in history to Civil War time— um, Woodland Cemetery is a very important historical area in terms of uh, Cleveland's history. It was built in 18—first of all, it's situated between Quincy Avenue and Woodland Avenue going north-south and between East 66th Street and East 71st Street going west-east. And this cemetery, which was built in 1853, has more people that are buried there from the Civil War era than anywhere in the state. Really? Yes. Cleveland supplied a tremendous amount of troops to the Union armies, uh, perhaps more than any other portion of the state. Because if you go back 160 years, Columbus was around, but it wasn't as important as it is now. Cincinnati was arguably the other big city in Ohio at the time. Uh, but down by Cincinnati, you had a whole bunch more, uh, how do I say this, uh, apologists as far as the Confederacy. They mm. used to call those yeah. uh, folks copperheads back in the day because they it. were like— they're like snakes to the Union war effort. Uh, I'm not going to say that there weren't any of those people in Cleveland because there were, but for the most part, the support for the Union Army was was you know, pretty much ironclad in this area. So, in fact, there is a major monument on Public Square on the northeast end of Public Square that was dedicated in 1865 at the end of the war. And um, a similar monument used to stand at Woodland Cemetery, but unfortunately it was vandalized at some point in the 20th century. And in fact, a lot of the original buildings, mausoleums, and some of the, the nicer um, structures at Woodland Cemetery over the years, it just wasn't upkept very well. And, and that I'll just say that that area of Central Neighborhood, which sort of borders Fairfax, isn't all that nice and it was sort of you know not really well policed either so mm -hmm. it wasn't until 1986 that woodland cemetery was placed on the national register of historic places and after this happened you saw a major refurbishment product happen and now the grounds are actually quite renovated and and they're actually um you wouldn't notice it any different from any other cemetery uh particularly in the suburbs or elsewhere but it, it it's honestly um i mean it's weird for me to be talking about a cemetery in this podcast but when you, when you think about some of the events that have happened in our country's history and who lies there um we quite frankly owe a lot to these people um uh, for how the country is now the fact that we're still a unified nation today so in fact we have people Absolutely. who are like fourth and fifth generation who who live here in cleveland who actually have their ancestors buried there wow so I never knew that that was it was that historical of a place. Yeah, wow. And, and it's it's sort of in a nondescript area of the city where you you wouldn't really think much of it as you're going yeah. past. But uh, yeah, it's it's really noteworthy. Hmm. So, but anyway, that that more or less wraps it up. That that is Central neighborhood. And I I feel like to some degree Central is is a little bit of a wasted area. I feel like. 
I mean, again, you have so much CMHA and public housing in there that I, yeah. it's kind of difficult to see how you're, I mean, the area around Euclid Avenue in the north is very nice. Mm-hmm. And the area around Tri-C Metropolitan Campus in the west is nice too. But it's, you can see what they've tried to do when they built all those new condominiums between East 30th and East 40th Street. But you're just not far away from, you know, an area that's pretty nondescript. And I, I guess say the, the no, I'm not going to go there. It's just, it's going to be really hard to turn Central into a neighborhood like Ohio City, like Tremont, even one like Asia Town that's even come back quite a bit in the last 10 years. Uh, just because you have that element there, I, I almost wish they would have located a lot of this uh, housing somewhere else, not that close to downtown. But yeah. that's just, those are decisions that made de- that were made decades ago. So w- what the city ultimately decides to do with Central going forward is, is actually quite interesting because... This is sort of the missing link, you know, going around downtown. You know, you could have uninterrupted, really nice, growing, profitable, and, you know, prosperous area all around downtown if it wasn't for that little corridor uh, in the east side of central neighborhoods. So Mm -hmm. I think that's going to be a challenge for the city's leadership going forward to to try to figure out a path um, for that to sort of reincorporate some of the investment. Because we're seeing people start to build in places like Huff like uh, Clark Fulton, you know, the south and west end of Detroit Shoreway, areas that were not nice at all 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And you're just not seeing that push in, in Central. And I, I think that's, you know, part of the reason why. But uh, yeah, hope springs eternal. And uh, it's an area that had some great history, and maybe it'll come back in the future. So anyway, that's Central Neighborhood. That's area number 18 that we've covered, and you can put it on the board. Yes, I'm refraining from saying that because we gotta we gotta think of something else to to say. Uh, you know, we talked about it a little. I bit I still last vote week. for Wham with the right hand, but we'll think of something. Yeah, I mean, maybe we'll come up with our own. I don't know. All right. Uh, I could always play Good Morning, Good Afternoon, and Good Night, Pittsburgh. <laughs> <laughs> Seeing as you eliminated like all their teams on the 24 game. That's right. Except for the Steelers, oddly enough. Weird, right? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you told me you'd keep the Steelers but eliminate the Penguins? What? Well, what's weird What's weird with that is, like, yeah, out of every single Pittsburgh team, the Steelers obviously are by far my most hated. Mm-hmm. But it's almost like... I'm keeping them around for the simple fact of keeping the rivalry around, I guess, mm-hmm. is what I would say. Whereas you, we have no rivalry with the Pirates. They're in the opposite league right. in baseball. And we don't have we a don't hockey have an team. NHL, so the and they don't, don't have an anything. NBA team. Yeah. And there's really no rivalries in the NBA unless you play each other in the NBA Finals. I mean, we don't really have a rivalry. I mean, it, they're, you're right. The NBA does not have severe rivalries to the to the depths that Major no. League Baseball and the NFL have, and to le- to some of an extent the NHL also. Yeah, right. Yeah, I I don't know what it is, you know, because you would think like we're in the same division as cities like Chicago and Detroit. You would think that those would be like na- natural, and 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 I guess to a certain extent, you know, it, it becomes a bit of a heated rivalry whenever we play the said teams in the playoffs. But there's just no juice in the regular season. I mean, rarely is there juice in the, the NBA, NBA regular, regular season. season anyway. It's just so watered down that, yeah, yeah. It, it makes it difficult. But, yeah, but I, I will mean, say, anytime we play Detroit or Chicago in the playoffs, I mean, it does get kind of heated. This is no joke. I was driving on US 20 through the little hamlet of Wakeman, 
uh, on my way to Norwalk a few weeks ago, mm-hmm. and there was literally somebody who was walking on the side of the road, was wearing a from 2007 the beat Detroit shirts <laughs> that we were giving out during the playoff that the Eastern Conference Finals. Oh yeah, and I have one of those on, and I have one of those still in my closet. And oh, it's I, just, I I bet I have 15 of those uh, first era LeBron playoff run t-shirts. I bet you I have 15 of them in my in my drawer somewhere in my room. Most of my Cavaliers gear is from the LeBron 1.0 era just from the the simple standpoint of I felt like that was the best uniform and color combination that we the Cavaliers have ever had. And then when they went to those yeah. ketchup and mustard jerseys after LeBron left, I mean it just like they've been trying to reinvent themselves you didn't ever like since. Those, huh? at, oh no. Oh no. The the ones that we had in between the two LeBron eras, uh, uh, uh well, they're better than what we have now. Is it, well, yeah, I mean, there's what we have now is horrific. But, Maybe that's why they're rebranding again now. Hey, I'll say this: we haven't really touched on it, um, but I actually like what the Cavs did with this rebrand. Mm-hmm. I really do. There's a lot of symbolism and and uh, looking back at the history while also giving it kind of a modern touch. Um, I love the new Cavs wordmark. Going back to the basketball V. Yeah, you got the net and the V with the basketball. Um, That's from the 80s, but it also has the line through the script like it used to have in the 90s. Mm -hmm. And then it's got its own, like, modern flair to it. Um, So I really like it. I actually like the the color tweak too, you know. I I, I agree with you. I didn't really like the um, the mustard colored yellow. No, because number one, anytime we wore anytime we wore the the actual yellow jerseys, I just thought we were like the Lakers. It's the same same type of yellow. Yeah, this type of gold, I don't think you have anywhere in the NBA. What they changed to? Uh, yeah, I don't think so. Because I mean, there's not many teams that have yellow to begin with. I mean, the Lakers and the Pacers are the two that I can think of off the top of my head. Yeah, and the, and the Warriors. They'd and be the, the Warriors. Other yeah. Um, and then the 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 wine color. I also I don't think the only thing that the only team that's come close to that I think are the Raptors that have come close to that color because yeah. they originally um, had purple and then and they the did purple, away with it. And now they're with the red and uh, yeah, so. A um, little bit of a sidebar there. We weren't planning on talking NBA at all today, but uh, but no, that was good. We haven't mentioned the uh, the updated logos yet, and they haven't released what the new, the new uniforms are going to look like yet. So um, that's going to be interesting. It's exciting that they're doing this now because they they really are going all in on this being a new era of Cavaliers basketball. Oh, 100%. And they, you know, they were a little bit ahead of schedule for much of last year, and maybe the team showed its youth, and the injury bug just absolutely killed them down oh, the stretch. crushed them. Uh, but winning 44 games last year was definitely higher than expectation. And Oh, I'm so know, excited for the next Cavs season. This, this, this is going to be good when we get to yeah, October. I mean, we got a long way to go, but uh, – you know, there's there's a lot of anticipation for that, and in that long way to go. Uh, in the meantime, we've got a uh, baseball team that is uh, that is certainly overachieving right now. They're I believe, surging. I believe the Guardians have won eight out of their last eleven, and they are, I think, still within three games. They've won eight out of the last eleven, and I mean, frankly, it should be nine of the last eleven. They they had a complete yeah. and utter meltdown on after the seventh inning on Saturday. Which yep. cost ultimately cost them a series sweep against Oakland, but then 
I'm thinking to myself, did the Guardians uh, pull a little bit of gamesmanship three and a half. on Sunday by having their game at 11.30 a.m.? You know, so they had 30 a.m. Pacific so they time. They had nothing to do with that. I, I, I learned later that no, this was some national TV thing that they're doing with Peacock. Yeah. So MLB, MLB uh, starting a partnership with Peacock where uh, they're letting they're having Peacock uh, broadcast uh, a handful of games, and uh, the the Guardians A's matchup this past Sunday was one of them. And yeah, it's hilarious that uh, you have a team from. Uh, you have a team from California playing uh, in the Eastern Time Zone at 11:30 in the morning. <laughs> Hashtag FML. If you're the an only Oakland player, yeah. I mean, the only thing that would have made that worse is if that would have been the first game of the series that they played 11:30, and like Oakland had just flown in like the night before. <laughs> yeah. At least they at least they had gotten two days to kind of try and acclimate themselves to, to the, the time. to the Eastern Time Zone. But uh, yeah, so. Uh, it kind of sucks that the Indians lost on Saturday because I I knew there was no way they were going to lose on Sunday with that time slot. There's just absolutely no way. I mean, they got three runs in the first inning. I mean, that was predictable. Yeah. So, so uh, yeah, the Guardians took two or three uh, from the A. Was it three or did we play them for four games? I can't remember. Did they play four games? They might have played four games actually. Should be three out of four. Yeah. So I think they did because they had three against Texas and then they played every game. They didn't have any off days last week. Yeah, it was a four-game series, so they took uh, three out of four from the A's. Um, they took two, uh, one, two, three. F- uh, they took two out of three from the Rangers, and they took two out of three from the Ray or the Orioles going back. So they're on a good run of form, and uh, I'll tell you what, man. They're letting the kids play because they have no other options because their owners won't spend money, and uh, the kids are playing. Like, if you go down and you look at the um, – let me see. Let me go to the stats here. If you go down – let's just pull up tonight's lineup. Uh, currently, it is the top of the third in Denver and 0-0 game between the Guardians and the Rockies. I was thinking there was going to be a lot of home runs in this game, but um, not, we got no runs at all so far. But you just think of it. I mean, you know, Stephen Kwan got a lot of run during tra- uh, spring training, but you know, he's somebody that nobody's heard of before this year. Um, Oscar Gonzalez, yeah, he's just your cleanup hitter today, and he's batting three eighty five since he's been brought up to the majors. Uh, Andres Jimenez uh, was up last year for a little bit. He's he's got a batting average over three hundred. He's played almost every day, so that's legit. Owen Miller, he was. Red hot earlier in the season. He's still got an average of 264. Steven Kwan, 275. Uh, and then uh, the best player in baseball this year. I mean, I don't know how you can say otherwise. Jose Ramirez batting 290, 16 home runs, 59 RBIs in 56 games played. This is their 57th game tonight. He has 59 RBIs. Whenever you're over an RBI a game, that is sick. Yeah. He's on, I mean, he's on pace. For uh, let me see, what a hundred hundred and seventy-five RBIs or something. Like hundred and seventy. He's on pace for forty-six home runs, forty-nine doubles, twelve triples, a hundred and seventy-six RBIs. <laughs> I mean, could you imagine if he went fifty home runs, fifty doubles, and led the league in RBIs? I mean, that would be like Albert Bell in nineteen ninety-five. He could be triple crown with those numbers. I mean, I don't think he's going to get it on average because he's batting 290. Oh, you named three categories. Yeah, batting average wasn't one of them. But um, yeah, here's another thing. 
Uh, he's played in 56 games. He has 209 at-bats, 61 hits, 17 strikeouts. That might be the most impressive of all. He has as many doubles as he has strikeouts. That's incredible. He has one less home run than he I, has I mean, strikeouts. I mean, forget everything else. Him striking out less than 10% of the time is newsworthy. I mean, how many he's, players are in that boat? So he's on pace for 605 at-bats this year, 49 strikeouts. His on-base percentage has got to be sick. He's oh, only struck yeah. out 17 times. Yeah, I mean, the thing about him is, you know, he gets he gets put-outs a lot because he doesn't – he gets – he doesn't you know, walk very much. He does, well, he doesn't walk, and he doesn't strike out. So at least he's putting pressure on the defense to get him out. Yeah. You know, we're in this area of baseball where if, if you strike out less than 150 times, that's pretty good now. It used to be. If you if you struck out over 100 times, you were, like, sent back down to the minors. Like, when we watch <laughs> baseball in the 90s, if you struck out over 100 times, like, I mean, that was like that was like Richie Sexton and Russell Brannion. Now guys are, uh, are striking out like 180 times a, a year. <clears throat> Richard K. Sexton and Russell K. Brand. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, seriously, I, you know, the game has changed so much. I mean, we grew up watching baseball in the 90s and the early 2000s. I, I talk about this like we're 50. We're, we're still in our mid-30s. Right. But it's amazing how the game has changed. But Jose seems like he's back, at, back uh, you know, playing in the 90s, not striking out, putting the ball in play. Um, hit, he's a doubles machine. He's the he's the best player in baseball. I mean, who who right now would you say would be better? Is he defensively good enough to be considered a five hole, a five tool player? Oh yeah, he's a great. He's a good, if not great, defensive third baseman. I mean, I, I hardly ever makes an error, anything like that. I mean, yeah, you got to consider him a five tool player. Never makes a play like Naylor made on Saturday, right? Oh God. <laughs> That lost us the game. Yeah, it literally did. That play cost us five runs. G- gave them an extra out, and they got a grand slam. They scored a the run. Hits. They scored a run on that play, and then they ended up in the later. That would have ended the inning. Yeah, they scored a run on that play, and then they ended up hitting a grand slam later in the inning. I mean, that was the game on Saturday. So, but I mean, I shouldn't be dwelling so much on Saturday. No, another. Like, that's yeah. another guy. Thanks for bringing him up. That he's another guy. I mean, Josh Naylor is. You know, people were talking about he might not have a career after the injury that he suffered last year snapping his leg or his ankle and just above his ankle in half on a collision oh that was that collision in like left center field mm-hmm. oh I shallow left that. center yeah yep he collided with the second baseman and snapped his leg in half people were saying that he wasn't going to come back um because he you know he's not the most athletically looking guys he's, he's a little bit of a heavy set guy but I mean, he's come back and he's 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 played great for us. He's absolutely been been great for us. Um, if you Kids, just look- this is why you yell, "I got it." Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's. Let me just pull up his stats. I mean, he's on pace for over twenty home runs and just shy of ninety RBIs, batting two seventy. I mean, if he does that, I mean, it's fantastic. That's a that's a really solid season. Yeah. The one the I, the one thing that I will say that that's been a little bit disappointing about this team and it and um I've heard a lot of people explain it and pitching has been suffering around the league this year because of the short condensed spring training. Um our starting pitching hasn't been as precise as it normally has been. I do think that's one area where spring training being cut short does matter because 
early on in the season, like in spring training in April, it does seem like the hitters yeah. are ahead of the pitchers. But once you get to September and especially October, uh-uh. The, yeah. the pitchers are usually dialed in, and it's it's difficult to score. Yeah, I mean, I, just for example, Shane Bieber, who's who's picked it up recently, had a tough start to the season, and a lot of that was was uh, um, you know, related to a lack of velocity to start the season, and I think that goes to the condensed spring training where these guys didn't. Uh, adequately stretch out especially the starters didn't adequately stretch out to uh to begin the season so you had a lot of um starts at the beginning where even though guys were giving up no runs one run you know once they got to the fifth inning they were they were yanked their first couple starts just because they're not you know there was a case i'm trying to remember off the top of my head who the player was who was carrying a perfect no hitter or a perfect game into the eighth inning and the team yanked him? Uh, Kershaw, was on, yeah, Clayton Kershaw, like who's yeah. like the best pitcher in baseball practically, and, and, and he even agreed. The Dodgers yanked and, him, and he he agreed with the with the uh, decision because I think even even he realized it. He's he wasn't you know he was gassed. He wasn't stretched out adequately because he didn't have a full spring training. And I think that's what happened, and that's a result of the uh, the work stoppage that we had. I get why teams would make that decision because you're not winning any championships in April, but at the same time, that's just ruthlessly difficult to have to pull a guy in a situation like that. I mean, would you rather do that or would you rather him over uh, overextend himself to try and yeah, it, get the perfect game in spring and he ends up, you know, I'm not even talking about, like, you know, seriously injures himself. You know, what if he just, like, pulls a muscle in his arm or something and is out for, like, six weeks and then when he comes back he's just not the same the rest of the year? I mean that's the sort of thing that you have to weigh as a manager, yeah. You know? Yeah, and I'm sure I'm sure if they had a normal spring training, you know maybe they let him go, maybe they let him go for it. Yeah. But yeah, so, and it's not just it's not just the Guardians. It, it it's all like we just you know talked about with Kershaw. It was all over baseball to start the season, but it's good to see Bieber uh, back and uh, tracking in the right direction. Tra- Tristan McKenzie has been great all year. Uh, Cal Quantrill has been pretty good for us. Uh, Plesac has been up and down. Uh, the guy who has been a uh, disappointment this year has been Aaron Savali, and he is on the injured list right now. So hopefully he can get back and get back to his form. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the Guardians definitely are overachieving. And, you know, wh- what a difference Terry Francona makes. I mean, we didn't have him for the majority of last year because of his uh, health and, um, you know, all that. And uh, we really struggled. But this guy... I don't know what it is, but you'd have a hard time finding a manager do more with less or, you know, be able to motivate a team to play as well as the Guardians are playing right now. And it bodes it bodes well for the rest of the season because if you look historically, especially with the Guardians, Terry Francona's Terry Francona's teams are always second half teams. They're always just always kicking butt in August and September. Yeah, seemingly. I mean, when when the when the, uh, the back in 2017 when they were the Indians, you know, when they went on that 22 game winning streak, that was in August. Yep. Um, and you know they've made 2016. They they play. They were unconscious in the second half of the season on their way to the World Series. You know, even go going as far back as uh, his first season with the club, or maybe it was the second season of the club. The the season that we got into the uh, the play in. Uh, the playoff game with uh, 
uh, the Rays Tampa. when we ended up getting shut out at home. But just to get to that game was pretty incredible. So the Guardians are a second-half team. So if they if they can tread water, stay above 500, and stay within striking distance, you know, like we kind of talked about last night, they got to be buyers at the deadline. Certainly if they're in the position they're in now, and it's funny that you bring this up because – one of the often cliches, you usually don't hear this in June, you often hear it in like August and September, Malik games, ba- games back, but also you sometimes hear, well, they're one or two back or they're tied in, in the loss column. The yeah. all-important loss column. It's like the yeah. win column doesn't even matter. The, the loss column is what's really important. Well, if you, if you look at it from that perspective, the Guardians are tied for the division lead in the loss column. <laughs> yeah, they just need to go on a seven-game winning seven streak. They're seven behind in the <laughs> win column because Minnesota has played so many more games than we have. How, because how is it of, that Minnesota has not had all these rainouts and we've just had tons of rainouts? I, I don't know. I mean, it's just crazy. It's not raining in Minneapolis. Like, I, is it still snowing? I don't know. I mean, did they play on the road all the day, the games? Maybe they did. I mean, I I have no idea. That's it's funny. They played seven more games than us. They've won them all. So they're 36 and 27. We're 29 and 27, three and a half games back. Chicago's in third place at 28 and 31. And then Detroit and Kansas City really don't matter. So, <laughs> um, again, be thankful that this is the situation we're in. In fact, there's only one team with a winning record in the AL West right now, which I find kind of surprising. The Houston Astros are 37 and 24. The Rangers are next best at 29 and 31. Well, so that's you, be, that's because the uh, Oakland Athletics lost 14 games in a row and got their manager fired. <laughs> 21 and 41. They're tied for the worst record in the AL right now with the Royals. But think about this. The Guardians are two games above 500. The Boston Red Sox are three games above 500 right now. They are 12 and a half games back of the first place Yankees. The Yankees are 44 and 16. And then, oh, by the way, also there's Toronto at 36 and 24 and Tampa at 35 and 25. So thank your lucky stars that you're not looking up at that right now because that would be a much different scenario if if you were sitting 13 games out right now instead of three and a half out. This is very doable. And, you know, maybe this is a situation where most likely whoever wins the AL Central is probably going to get swept aside in three games of the division series, which seems to be the the norm anymore. But uh, be that as it may, the fact that you have a chance to get there is great. Um, when you talk about being buyer or seller at the deadline, if we were in the AL East, we'd almost be resigned to being sellers already just because of who's in the division. Right. But it is interesting, though, because uh, I think this year there are three wild cards in in each league in baseball. Wait, say what? Yeah, I think the playoff uh, format changed this year. I flat out did not know that. I'm almost positive. Uh I believe that there's... Well, that probably just means that the third-place team in the AL East is getting in. <laughs> probably. Let me check. I'm assuming that's not like two per league or something. It's got to be like. Yeah. So there's three wild cards in each each uh, each league this year. How's that gonna work? Uh So the 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 second and third wild card will play each other, and then they'll like move on to play the first I wonder, wild card. Or I wonder like, if. So it's like an extra advantage to be the top wild card. Huh. I don't know. I'm not sure how that's gonna work. I, maybe maybe they're going to do it the same way that uh, the NFL did it, where the top team in each league gets a bye. I don't know. And then the other the other division winners the face the three. Two, it could be like the old NFL system where the top two get buys. 
and then three, oh, four, yeah, five, and there's six, six play each other. My bad. Yeah. I mean, they could do that. So if that was the scenario, then that means the Yankees would get a bye. And then right now you'd be looking at either Houston, Toronto, or Tampa to get the second bye. Yeah. Uh, but, okay, that I mean, that would give you another path uh, conceivably. In fact, if that is indeed the format, the Guardians would be a half game out. We'd be behind Boston by a half game. So you're pretty much right on that threshold. Okay, so here we go. So the new format will do away with the single wild card game and instead pit the third best division winner against the last team in while the best and the second best wild card winners play each other. These games will be played in a three-game series hosted by the team with the better record. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Yeah, that's They're what, getting rid of the one yes, game and out. They're making you. it a three-game series. I hated the yes. one game. I've been hoping for them to do that for forever. Yep. Thank you so much, Rob Manfred. You have just made my night well, big time. Well, let's calm down. I oh, Rob yes. Manfred any credit. Who knows if it was his idea. <laughs> I don't care I, whose idea it was. But anyway, so that is the new uh, MLB playoff format. So we'll see. I mean, we'll see what happens. Uh, I don't put anything past the Guardians, uh, especially in the division that we're playing in and with the manager that we have. You know, we gave, you know, as we lamented the offseason for the Guardians where they really added absolutely nothing and have and have relied on promoting from within with their farm system, you know, my – Personally, my uh, consternation with the organization had nothing to do with the front office and the manager. It had everything to do with the top. So the fact that this team is as competitive as it is tells you all you need to know about the manager, uh, number one, and uh, also the, the front office um, building up the farm system, farm system like they have over the last uh, handful of years. So. Hopefully they keep it going, and uh, if they do, we're in for another exciting summer of uh, baseball on the corner of it's Carnegie cer- and Ontario. It certainly is exciting right now. You know, the Guardians going through this run of West teams right now, first yeah. Texas, then Oakland, now Colorado, and then they'll play the L.A. Dodgers this weekend. It's, it seems like a long time since we haven't played the division team, which you know makes it all the more impressive that the Guardians That's are because playing most well of right them, now. That's because most of those games get rained out. <laughs> right. <laughs> And and you, and those games at least those games you can make up. Well, right, those games you're not you're not scrambling to get a double header in the next day because you can just reschedule it for some weekend in July. Right. So um, yeah, but uh, that is uh, hopefully we don't have three of our guys on our pitching rotation out by that yeah. point, <laughs> like we did last year. Right. Uh, so anyway, that is uh, that's some Guardians talk uh, for you, and uh, we're gonna get into some Browns talk. They they started uh, mandatory minicamp this week. Of course, Baker Mayfield was not there. Um, that was agreed to by him and the team that he would not show up as they are continuing to work on a trade for the disgruntled quarterback. Shame. Um, yeah, but uh, we are going to start a new segment on the show. One that. Uh, we literally just put together about half an hour before we <laughs> hit record. But uh, we're going to be doing a bit of a uh, positional prognostication for the Cleveland Browns uh, every week up until the first uh, regular season game. So that's 13 straight weeks. We're going to talk about a different position on the field. Are there even 13 positions? Wide receiver, tight end, quarterback, running back, O-line fullback we don't have a fullback oh uh defensive end defensive, defensive tackle and pr- rusher 
tackle, linebacker. Outside linebacker, middle linebacker. No, we're not going to do that. We're just going to okay. do linebackers. Uh, uh, safeties, corner, corners. Safety. Kicker and, and punter. Kicker. And we'll just do special teams. So there's 11. So what? You know, we'll get close. Whatever. You don't want to do a dissertation of the long snapper? No, I don't. <laughs> Because the only reason why I want to hear anything about I, I never want to hear the snap the, the the long snapper's name mentioned in a game because if it is it's because he snapped it over the punter's head or something like that. And I will say this: this week we are kicking off with another position group where you hope during a game you don't hear much about them. That's right. And those are that's probably the most underappreciated uh, position group on the field. You literally cannot win a Super Bowl. Unless you have a good offensive line. That's true. That's very true. You know, for as much crap as I give the Cincinnati Bengals, they made it about as far as you possibly can go with having a crappy offensive line. Yeah. It, it, I mean, that's the main reason why they were so terrible the season previous. They nearly got Joe Burrow killed. Yeah. And lo and behold, they were able to somehow patch it together and make it work. And uh, I'm about to say something that I don't think a lot of people are going to agree with, and I don't know that you're going to agree with this. Okay. I actually think offensive line might be one of the biggest question marks on the Cleveland Browns. I'm Well, if you're excluding quarterback, well, you, could quarterback have, you could have a good case. Quarterback's not on the offensive line. Oh, oh okay. I, hold on. Maybe I didn't understand what you said. I thought just out of the position groups, you said one of the bigger question marks was the O-line. Yeah. Okay. Well, quarterback is clearly the biggest question mark on the team overall in or in position group. So well, yeah. Down, that, well, that's because we, so we don't know what's. One. That's because we don't know what's going to happen with the quarterback. Okay. So yeah, I guess. Yeah, but I, I think I think over the last several years, um, the Browns have been highly regarded with their offensive line, and I think. For the most part, that's been that's been warranted. Mm-hmm. But I only consider forty percent of our offensive line a sure thing right now. And that's our two guards. Wyatt Teller and Joel Batonio. Yeah. Our two high high price guards. Um we got rid of JC J. Treader yep. in the offseason. Um replaced him with a guy who's been on the team for two years now who in spot duty last year when he was called upon played pretty well in Nick Harris. So I think there's potential for him to be pretty good, although it's it's a question mark. He's never been a, a, a full-time starter for the team. Right. And I think the reason why the offensive line is such a question mark is you don't have proven commodities at tackle. No, you really don't. On either side. If he was healthy, I would say, yes, Jack Conklin, he's one of the best right tackles in football. He's coming off a torn patella in his knee. You're thinking about knees in terms of being able to block for an offensive lineman for a tackle. Yeah, knee, pretty important. Yeah, you're dude, you're you're getting most. I mean, okay, so these guys are really big in the upper body, but you're getting most of your power from your legs. And yeah. if you can't plant, if you can't push properly, that's a big problem. Yeah. And Jed Wills was an absolute basket case last year. Now I also will. Uh, equate a lot of that to injury. He suffered a high ankle sprain in week one last year and tried to play through it. So I'm going to give him credit there. But it just got to a point where he j- physically just couldn't play, couldn't really play the position well at it seemed all. seemed like we were talking about him every single week for a while. Yeah, 
And again, I, this isn't a dog on him because he tried to play through a really bad. Like people, I don't think people understand just how badly a, a highly a high ankle sprain is. I mean, I've never had one. You have. I've had one multiple times playing basketball. It's really bad. I mean, I wouldn't say that it's like breaking your ankle or or like it's pretty damn close. Hmm. I mean, a high ankle sprain, you're damaging multiple ligaments in your ankle. Yes. And that's generally usually a four to eight week injury. And he was trying to play on it every week. He did it in week one and he was trying to play on it week two through week whatever. And then they finally gave him a couple weeks off and they had uh, Joel Batonio switch out to left tackle who did an absolutely admirable job at left tackle. That's where he played in college. Um, Joel Batonio is just an animal. He's one of the best offensive linemen in football, whatever position you want to put him at. Um, but our tackles are a question mark, man. I, I don't know. I just – we re-signed um, Chris Hubbard, which is good, as our kind of backup swing tackle. But, again, he missed all of last year with an injury. And he's not young. He's in his 30s now. So is he going to stay healthy? I don't know. Um, and Can I then, talk about a guy that you perhaps have not even heard of yeah, previously? Yeah, let let's uh, scout scout Stephen here. Let's put your scouting hat on. Let's talk about uh, some of the O line depth on the squad. Yeah, so I am quite literally just driving around on Sunday afternoon, and for whatever reason, Strongsville and Berea seem to be like a real hotbed of rideshare activity on Sunday mm. afternoon, uh, which is kind of odd. That's not my normal geography. But um, I'm coming up from on I-71, and I get pinged to go to the Browns practice facility. Ping! And I'm like, oh. Let's go to 78, was it 78 Lugro, 76, 76 Lugrosa Lugrosa Boulevard. Yeah. I'm like, oh, well, that's a first. I had never had to do that before. Yeah. And sure enough, I pull up, and you got three guys who are all at least six, two, Lar- six, three. Large humans. You know, coming in. Turns out they're three undrafted free agents Hmm. and the one who was sitting by me in the passenger seat was this guy named brock hoffman who is an undrafted free agent from virginia tech who played center interesting Wyatt teller also from virginia tech six foot he's listed at six four three oh two and i actually didn't think he was three oh two but like he was i mean he's very large i mean i didn't get the feel like it was all like you can tell there's no, you, there's thought no, he, you thought he weighed more or less than? I thought he weighed less than 302. He okay. seemed he seemed pretty agile actually. Okay. You know, sinewy, all, all like all muscle. Like there was no fat on this guy, hardly at all. So, which is different, which is a lot different from uh, offensive linemen of the past. Right. I mean, more and more you're seeing smaller, more athletic offensive lines in the NFL. I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that they're not blocking straight up anymore. They're they're doing these you know sweep zone running schemes, and, yeah. and you know, and that and you have much more mobile quarterbacks in the NFL now. So being able to block out on the edge for a quarterback that escapes the original pocket and be able to set up a new pocket essentially for him on the outside is very important. So yeah, I mean, very rarely do you see. I mean, probably the only position where you see just an absolute mammoth of a human being defensive tackle it well i was going to say left tackle but yeah on the defensive end yeah sure Mm. um but yeah i mean especially guards and centers i mean you got to be athletic you got to be able to pull and do all that sort of stuff now 
bottom line is, is if you are a safety or a corner, and, and the other two guys that were in my backseat looked like they played either receiver or safety or corner. Yeah. Um, I didn't ask what their names were. But uh, if if you're a corner or a safety, the last thing you want to see is an offensive lineman coming at you at the second level for a block. Oh, yeah. Oh, my <laughs> you God. don't want to see that. Can you imagine being a safety coming up to the line of scrimmage and then, you know, trying to, <laughs> the trying to play the, the run and then you, you see Wyatt Teller swinging around coming at you. I, that's why Wyatt Teller is so great. Like, he, oh, he yeah. Just, he's, he's fantastic. He's Yeah. Um, can you Who's say where they, where they were going? So uh, just to the residence in Middleburg Heights. Oh, okay. So they're going back to the hotel. Yeah, they're in town for yeah, yeah. minicamp. For minicamp, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's cool. That's awesome. Hopefully you get uh, called to the facility a little bit more. I mean, usually if you're going to get called to the facility, it's going to be like that. It's going to be for either free agents who are brought in for training camp uh, that don't, like, have a car here or residents that are just staying in the hotel um, or, like, rookies and stuff. It could be stuff. for team yeah. personnel perhaps yeah, also. Yeah. But, but, yeah, uh, the guys who are making millions are not are not calling ride share. No. <laughs> They get driven everywhere. Either that or they're taking out their, you know, $150 Benz out of the parking lot. Mm-hmm. So, um, but what are what are your feelings about the O-lineman? I, I shared my concerns. I, I'm interested to see if you have any. Well, it's different. sort of the same thing, you know. It They're they're good up the middle. They're not yeah. – you don't know quite as much. I mean, Nick Harris, I, I feel better about him than I do about either of the tackle spots, quite frankly. I'm very concerned at tackle. Yeah. People, I think people are just assuming that Jack Conklin's going to be there week and one. And that Jed and be, Wills is going to be back and is going to be fine. Yeah, I, I mean, I, Jed, Wills is, <laughs> Jed Wills will be healthy, and he'll be there at left tackle. The problem is, is he's he, this is going into his third year, and he's still really not proven. Right. He was okay his rookie year. He wasn't anything to write home about. And last year, he battled injury the whole year. So it's like, mm-hmm. I, you know, color me uh, spoiled when it comes to the tackle position in football, but I had a guy named Joe Thomas – that was anchoring the Browns' uh, tackle spot for 11 years. Now, right. let's we're not going to equate that to team success because the team was awful every year but one. He was on the team, and it was his first year. But, yeah. I, yes. At this point, I would, I would call the Browns' O-line serviceable. I would not say it's great. Uh, the two guys who, uh, thankfully, I picked in my Browns' top five last year before the season – yeah. Uh, Batonio and Wyatt Teller are, I feel like, both elite. But, oh, yeah. I mean, we have like, we have the best guard combination. Two out of five, that doesn't really make a unit elite. <laughs> now, could they could they round into something, especially if Conklin and Wills have a good season? Absolutely, they could. Oh, yeah, they'll go right back to being one of the best offensive like, lines in the league. My, my you know, thing is, is I think a lot of people are assuming that Jack Conklin, A, is going to be healthy week one, and Jed Wills is going to turn into a top ten pick like that we drafted him as i I, i'm fairly confident nick harris just because you know on his right he has wyatt teller on his left he has joel batonio so i'm pretty confident that he's going to be okay but man i just don't know and and you know the thing about it is is even if jack conklin somehow comes back first week of the season if he goes down with an injury I, where's our depth on the O line? I mean, yeah. we have Ray Hudson from Cincinnati that we drafted last year, but he was he was an elephant on roller skates last year. I mean, and you know, God bless him. He's a, he Are was you a, saying his footwork was terrible? Is no, that it was just God bless him. He was a fourth round rookie. We can't really expect him to be all worldly, but I mean, my goodness. Um, so we'll see. Ah. Uh, one interesting after effect of the the whole Deshaun Watson thing is I feel like 
we're not going to have Kool-Aid season this year like we often do with the Browns. People are going to be really down on them and dogging them probably in, yeah. in August, whereas ordinarily everybody's got the orange and brown colored glasses on and are thinking, you know, 11-5, and 12-4 playoffs, you know, and, and, and all now, that. I will say the the worries that I have about the O-line are not as important if Deshaun Watson's on the field. That he's guy, mobile and can get around. That guy was the best quarterback in the league two years ago when his team went 4-12 and with one of the worst offensive lines in the history of football. Mm-hmm. That guy threw for like 5,000 yards, had a 70% completion percentage, threw for 33 touchdowns and only seven interceptions with one of the worst offensive lines in football. So you don't necessarily need a great offensive line for Deshaun Watson. The problem becomes if Deshaun Watson is suspended for eight to ten games, if you have a bad offensive line for Jacoby Brissett, oof, boy. You gotta that's where the offensive coordinator has to step in and do a really good job of game planning and yeah. scheming. He's gotta do things to, you know, get the, ball, get the ball out quickly, you know, so you're not holding it for, you know, more than two and a half, three seconds. Yeah. Jacoby um, Brissett, when he was the when he was the quarterback of the Indianapolis Colts, they had a very good offensive line. Jacoby Brissett was very serviceable. Jacoby Brissett last year playing in Miami when they had an absolute trash offensive line was a trash quarterback. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. I'm I'm to the point now where I'm expecting some sort of suspension for Deshaun Watson. I don't know what that is. Uh, Ian Rappaport seemed to hint on the Pat McAfee show yesterday that he thinks it'll be anywhere between four to ten games. That's kind of it's a broad, a pretty large range. It's a broad spectrum. I mean, Jeez. because because truly nobody nobody knows what the NFL is going to do. So he said from from people within the NFL, you know, circles, probably people from other teams and stuff. He's heard everything from they think four games to ten games. So what I read is that there is a former federal judge who is like the initial adjudicator of suspensions, yeah. and then if it goes to appeal, it goes directly to Goodell yeah, that's himself. A, that's a giant. That's a giant. Uh, smoke and mirrors campaign. Goodell's ultimately going to rule. Goodell's on it never again. Gonna, Goodell's never going to go against his counsel. I wouldn't think. Well, I now, mean, if here's what I think, because of the court of public opinion, and and I I don't re- I didn't really want to get into and the Deshaun court Watson of public again. opinion has really gotten ugly in the last <clears> week, but we don't need to talk too much about that. The court of public opinion, um, Deshaun Watson's guilty of everything he's being accused of. Essentially, yeah, that's basically what what's going on. So, given the NFL's misgoings of um, personal conduct policy punishment in the past, I'm looking right at the Ray Rice situation where he was suspended for two games and then the video leaked of him just knocking his wife out in an elevator and then he never played another game again. I think the NFL is going to levy a heavy hand. Now, now what I'm saying is, if Sue Robinson, the the way that I think it were it, it works out is if Sue Robinson says no suspension, the NFL can't appeal that. They can only appeal discipline that's handed out. So if Sue Sue Robinson says two games, Roger Goodell can come back and say no, I six games, mm-hmm. and that will be final. There's no like going back and you know. And they could also you know the distinction could possibly change too between like suspension versus like paid leave or unpaid yeah. you know, whatever. Yeah. So basically what I'm trying to say is um, we better hope for Cleveland Browns football sake that 
Judge Sue Robinson goes light on her suspension because whatever her suspension is, I think the NFL is going to appeal for a larger suspension. Hmm. So if Sue Robinson goes eight games, I think the NFL just to say, hey, we're taking this seriously and we're gonna we're gonna make a make a stand on this. If say, say Sue Robinson says eight games, Roger Goodell's gonna say, well, ten. If she says six games, maybe he goes, well, eight. Hmm. Four, maybe he goes he still goes eight. You know, but the higher that she goes, I think the NFL is going to try and go at least one step higher just so they can tell the public, hey, we're taking this seriously. So we'll see what happens. The good thing is that the schedule makers have done the Browns a bit of a favor in that the early games are not that difficult on paper. Let's let's put it this way. You're talking about the Panthers, the Jets, the Falcons. Yeah, there's if, beatable teams up front, even with Jacoby Brissett. If, the, if, if, the, if we didn't have this Deshaun Watson stuff and he was guaranteed to start week one, I think the Browns could start 6-0. and yeah, It'd be possible, theoretically. I don't know if they beat New England and, and L.A., but, yeah, I mean, they could. Yeah. Um, with Jacoby Brissett in there for the first six games, I think if we go 3-3 three and three and Deshaun Watson comes back for that seventh game, we're feeling pretty good about ourselves. Because that's about when the, the schedule gets much harder. Yeah. You start seeing division teams. You start uh, and then, you know, got some difficult but, teams out of the division too. But if if you have, if you Deshaun Watson is on the field uh, without looking at the Browns schedule, I don't know if there's outside of maybe the Buffalo game and maybe on the road at Baltimore, I don't know that there's a game that the Browns won't be favored in. Those are – I identified those as like the two hardest games we had to play all year. Yeah, the ones at Baltimore and that Buffalo. Because we don't play Kansas City, do we? No, I don't think so. We don't play home against Tampa. Might be the next hardest. That's game another. Yeah, that. okay. Yeah, yeah. If Tom, if if Brady is upright and playing, yeah, that's going to be another tough one. So, so it's going to be interesting. But uh, yeah, offensive line, I see it as more of a question mark because I think a, that I think a lot of. Uh, Browns fans do and a lot of the national media just because I think oh they had a good offensive line last year and they're bringing pretty much everybody back so it's going to be it's going to be fine. Well, you don't know if your right tackle is going to be healthy to begin the year and if he's going to be as good as he's been because he's coming off a torn patella. He's not coming off of like a uh busted shoulder. Like knee like you said, knee is like the most important joint for an offensive lineman. Yep. Knees and elbows, really. And what's hilarious is last year, at the beginning of the year, Jack Conklin dislocated one of his elbows. Yeah, you can't even push. <laughs> you don't have that. So, yeah, he came. the game he came back in was the game he tore his patella. So God, he's snake-bitten. Our, our, tackles, our tackles last year were, like you said, snake-bitten. Left tackle, high ankle sprain, first, first game of the season. Didn't really, you know, didn't really – play well at all the rest of the year uh first or second game of the year jack conklin dislocated his elbow came back in the middle of the year taurus patella uh our swing tackle our backup tackle um uh i think was it an acl or an achilles i think it might have been an achilles uh in training camp last year so our top three tackles last year got significantly hurt last year so that's why it's it's a question mark for me so we'll see I hope I hope that Je- that Jed Wills uh, works out. I'm definitely rooting for him. So, um, yeah, we'll see what happens. But uh, so that was our uh, that was our O line positional prognostication. Uh, we will move on next week with a different position. We'll see if we stay on the offense or if we alternate offense defense. But uh, next week we'll have another one. 
And uh, so yeah. before we conclude the episode tonight, I got to go to my smart aleck of the week. <laughs> and this smart ass of the week. This is really a good one this okay. week. So this is the final international window of inter- uh, international soccer play before the summer break. Yep. And Please tell me it's the English national. This team. is uh, well, boy, did they lay a stinker today. Um, yeah, uh, they're uh, they're hungry. They're uh, they're last in their group in the Nations League. <laughs> what they lose four nothing today? Four nil to Hungary. Z Huns. Yeah, I mean Italy lost five to two to Germany, but that's because Italy is not in the World Cup and they're experimenting with their lineups. At least they scored twice. <laughs> well, yeah, England scored today. But anyway, so in addition to the UEFA Nations League and a few other things that are going on, the Final intercontinental last chance playoffs were being played to determine the final teams in the World Cup field. Um, last week, actually, Ukraine was in the ah. final European playoff. They ended up losing to Wales. The which, Ticos. You know, so, yeah, today Costa, uh, Costa Rica defeated New Zealand uh, one to nothing. Costa Rican two, legend Joel Campbell. To get to the World Cup. The one I'm going to focus on was the other intercontinental playoff, though. That is the one between Peru and Australia. Okay. So... Oh, Peru yeah. was fifth place in. I watched. Bowl I watched these. Uh, the, the, the penalty kicks in, this game. in the Asian Football Confederation, <laughs> and this game was a honestly it was a very boring game. Yep. It showcased why you shouldn't be playing soccer in Qatar in June when it's over a hundred degrees. Wow. Uh, the players were extremely tired. They were moving like they played they were, that game in Qatar. Yes, oh. at the Al Ryan Stadium in in Doha. Mm-hmm. That's where they. They played these games in a centralized location because normally it would be a two-leg playoff home and away, but because of what was going on with COVID, they didn't know what the situation would be, so they just wanted to do a one-off instead. Mm-hmm. So this game was tied nothing-nothing, approaching penalty kicks, and the Australian manager did something very – we've seen this happen before, but it's kind of a shrewd, very risky move. He brought the backup goaltender off the bench – Four penalty kicks. Oh, this guy. This guy, this guy is a, a man clown. named Andrew Redmayne, who plays for Sydney FC in the Australian League. This guy was an absolute clown. And you got to, like, YouTube this because he is literally doing, like, jumps, jumping jacks, uh, like, you know, leg kicks. As the penalty kick takers for Peru are approaching the ball to kick it, Anything he can do to basically go, you know, you're not going to make the kick on me. And these guys are probably just looking mostly down. They're not even looking at him probably. But he's doing literally everything, doing quadruple salcows, like trying to <laughs> distract them from where they're going to put the ball. And sure enough, this this shootout, you know, it's normally five kicks. It was tied four to four after five kicks. So they had to do a sixth round. Australia makes their sixth kick, so now Peru's got to make their kick to keep the game going, otherwise they lose. And sure enough, this guy does the whole dance routine again, and he dives to the left, <laughs> to the right and saves the penalty, and he gives this shout, and he just like kind of gives this like s- smile with an open mouth, like, oh my God, look at what I just did. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I have to believe this was mostly luck that he was able to pull this off, but I swear now you're going to have soccer coaches and uh, managers from all over the world like watching this and wondering, like, 
No. Is this the new thing with like regard to no. stopping PKs? No, because P- goalies have done this in the past. <laughs> no self-respecting goalie would do that. That had no impact on whether that guy missed or not, or whether he saved. You don't it. think so? No. Okay. No. If it did, the guy who took the PK should never take a PK ever again. To be fair, the the first Peruvian who missed actually put it off the post. It wasn't because yeah. this guy stopped it. Right. So he made one save in six in six tries. I mean. It just happened to be the the one that sent Australia to the World Cup. I'll say is, this. I'll is, say is this. It dumb luck. I mean, maybe it's dumb luck. <laughs> if I don't, I don't know why goalkeepers don't just stay in place more often. Oh yeah, because you know one Agreed. or two, one or two times one of the the, the penalty kickers are going to try and go right up the middle. Yeah, I don't understand why. I mean, it's 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 the easiest save you can make. It so, is really I don't know. whatever. It, it is what it is. But yeah, so uh, Peru is in. No, Australia Peru is, is out. Sorry. Australia Australia's is in, in, which was a little bit a Costa little Rica. Bit of an Costa Rica is in. The Ticos Costa Rica are in. is in. So Costa Rica's reward, by the way, for getting in the you know last team in, they get to go. This has got to be group of death. They get to play Spain, Germany, and Japan. Japan. Yeah, good night. Meanwhile, Australia gets to play France, Denmark, and Tunisia, which makes <sighs> me really. I've been really high on Denmark, like compared to other prognosticators that it seems well, like they haven't lost a competitive game in forever we'll and it's see. making me wonder we'll see you know they were riding high in the euros it's it's weird to say they were riding high in the euros when uh after uh, the christian erickson christian erickson thing, thing. but it, it was like it was like you know they were running off of adrenaline goodwill and just you know i mean it was everybody unless you were playing denmark you were rooting for Denmark. Pretty much. So the amount of goodwill that they had in that tournament. And it carried all the way through qualifying. They went 10-0-0. I mean, they're, they're yeah. just on They tra- got to the semifinals of the Euro. They played England and uh, led to the— uh, Lost well, under before, controversial before circumstances, the game, too. Before the game, they had uh, their goalkeeper had one of the greatest uh, uh, lines in uh Casper Schmeichel of Leicester City. When uh, he was asked about it— "Quote unquote coming home," which is a an old uh, English soccer song, which is actually supposed to make fun of the English national team. But a lot of the clown England fans use it as a rallying cry, like "It's coming home, it's coming home." And Casper uh, uh, Schmeichel just, you know, very uh, coy, looked at the reporter and said, "Has it ever been home? Mm. I mean, have you ever won it?" And they're like, yeah, well, in 19, was it 66 they won the World 1966 Cup? 1966 World Cup. They won the World they, Cup, they so the they Euro, never won the they? Euro. So he, so when the reporter, the English reporter said 66, he goes, well, that wasn't the Euro. Has it ever been home? Hmm. So, and it didn't come home in twenty in uh, July of 2021. Interestingly and, uh, enough. Given de- given their uh, given their uh, their play of late, uh, I don't think it's coming home in, uh, in Qatar either. No. So, I mean, they got the U.S. to deal with in the group stage. But finishing my thought on Denmark and Australia, I'm wondering how is France going to screw this up because the World Cup France champion— France has also looked terrible has, in the Nations the, League. The World Cup, they the lost pre- today, too. The prevailing World Cup champion has not made it out of the group stage since 2006. So the hex is on France and, like— Yeah. Ah. Yeah, we'll see. Who knows? So. Yeah, but yeah, they got beat. We'll talk today more as World well. Cup as uh, as we get closer. Yeah, because uh, they're not playing the friggin' tournament now like they usually do, yeah. which which sucks. This would actually, I think, be the opening week of the tournament. Yes, it would be. Friday would be the so. opening game. 
So anyway, uh, that's going to do it for us on this episode of Living Off the Land. Uh, I'm Dan uh, with Steven. And uh, you can follow us on social media at the L-O-T-L podcast on all platforms. Well, actually, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. So, uh, But, yeah, that's going to do it for us, episode 215. Thanks for listening, and uh, we'll catch you guys next week. See ya. Bye.